What does it take to make workshops work? And how can we facilitate collaboration that sticks and leads to results? My name is Miriam Hartness, and with the Workshops Work podcast, I'm on the mission to find the magic ingredients that make workshops work. Today with me on the show are three guests, because this is a special show. It's a fireside conversation, and we do have a live audience from the Never Done Before community. And today I speak with three returning guests. I speak with Buiz Dong, Gabo Itera, and Tobias Meyer about the difficulties of corporate facilitation. So what can we do in organizations that might not want to be facilitated? So stay tuned. And by the way, if you don't have pen and paper at hand to take your own notes, scroll down to the show notes to download my free one-page summary. And now, lean back to be inspired. Welcome, everyone. I am excited to have three previous guests with us. We have Breeze Dong, and we have Gabor Britera, and we have Tobias Meyer. And I learned after I invited them that um, this feels like a school reunion. <laughs> <laughs> I was not aware that you actually know each other so well. We know so each other. Yeah, what comes to mind is, a, is a, the upstairs room in a pub in Hammersmith. That comes to mind, certainly. Not only that, but 42 acres in Shoreditch as well. Yeah. So there's a few places of connection and uh, over the years. Wow. What's of the agile community? Yeah. <laughs> Breeze, you, you were in London for uh, two years or so, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, I, I joined I, many of your workshops. There, definitely. And well, with each of you, I spoke about some aspects of what we might call corporate facilitation. So Scrum, Agile how to bring the method of facilitation in corporations. And in the meantime, I spoke to a lot of Scrum Masters, project managers, product managers, and often hear about the frustration that organizations are not ready for facilitation. They might be ready for the method, or they might want to put agile as a label on things, but then being agile and bringing the facilitative craft or art to an organization is still something different than the method. And I'm curious to dive into the topic with you today. So how can we get organizations ready for facilitation? Do we actually, or do we have to build a Trojan horse of facilitation <laughs> to get the craft into it? And I see Tobias. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, uh, Miriam. You know, how do we get an organization ready for facilitation? But I, I think the a previous question that might be asked is, why do we want to do that? Why should we do that? Why, why is that our job? Is our job to get an organization ready or is, is it to go into a ready organization? Because that's where the impact can happen. Being ready doesn't mean you know it. It just means you're You've emptied your cup, as it were, you know, and uh, ready for something new. But I don't know. I'd love to hear from the others about how do you ready? I don't, I don't know how to do that, I don't think. Yeah, but I think that's where, the, that's where the real crux of the matter lies. Getting the organization ready is a bigger challenge than the facilitation piece itself yeah. in some cases, I guess, because I guess facilitation is needed once we admit that the people on the floor know better than 
the hierarchies and the people above themselves. And I think facilitation is bound to happen when, you know, we want to make decisions and we want to make a participatory and collaborative way of making decisions and, you know, brainstorming ideas and coming up with various things. And I think getting an organization ready to accept that the community knows better than an individual, I think that's that's the hardest or that's the most difficult part of facilitation. Wow, that's beautifully said. And while you're saying, you know, there's this one metaphor that came to mind is gardening. You know, there's is a lot of cultivation of the soil that's needed before the plants can grow, right? So in many ways, you know, I work in an organization as an internal uh, enterprise coach, and a lot of our work is actually cultivating the soil. So a lot about mindset, a lot about really helping, you know, leaders and everybody essentially to kind of have this introspection so that this, when the soil is ready, then it seems like what we talked about, about facilitation, can then naturally emerge, naturally happen. The gardening metaphor is always, it's a lovely one about getting the soil ready. You know, one of the mistakes I've made in the past is, you know, some executive person usually gets in touch and says, can you come in and do some work in our organization? And the undertone of that is, can you come in and fix my teams? Really, that's really what they're asking, you know. And when I try to engage the executives themselves in the facilitation, they step back. It's not for me, it's for them sort of thing. So there's a danger in that. And and what I've started to do is to, to not do that, is to not go in and do that. So I suppose part of the readying is to meet the people that they're asking you to work with before you go in and work with them. And, you know, I used to go in with the assumption that things are broken and need fixing. And that's actually quite rude and quite insulting and quite patronizing, actually. And so to go into an organization and talk to the people there and ask them why they work there, what they love about it, what's working well, they will eventually tell you what's not working. But you're not coming in with the assumption that they're broken. And I think that's, that's a really powerful way of getting people to kind of like invite you in. Because they're talking about how great things are. And I love this organization because they do this and these people are great. And I love the people I work with and we're doing some awesome products, you know, and then you just keep letting them talk and encourage them and, and, you know, and bounce that back to them. But eventually they're going to tell you something that's not so great. You know, you don't even have to really prompt for it because you've got to open them up to a conversation. And then that's the moment, I think, when you can begin that conversation about, you know, potential change that, that is what our kind of facilitation is there for. Mm. And and Tobias, I, what I appreciate your facilitation, you know, most is this trust or appreciation. I, I mean, what what you come in is really p- meet people where they are, and when there is this empathy, when there is the compassion of being heard, then you know people would open up. And I I guess that's probably why sort of I was attracted to your style of facilitation from day one. You know, the the first day when I came to your Scrum Master training, I was like, this guy is amazing. You know, this this environment is actually a like really kind of a very kind of um, a heart. There there are heart connections built from the beginning, and then people start to kind of show up in a very authentic way. And then things start to emerge. There are also a lot of white elephants emerging in this kind of context, right? Mm. Yeah. (laughs) 
What, what I want to add to this is is when I walked into a, a room that was facilitated by you, Tobias, I felt that, you know, retrospectively, I understood that you showed up as being the least important person in the room. And that was amazing. That was really, truly, like, mind-shifting for me. The facilitator who is facilitating the learning, who is facilitating the collaboration is the least important person in the room. I, I love that. And I read that recently. Um, Francis Lailman, another colleague of ours. Um, also on the podcast. He's also been on the podcast. Yeah, he he's, uh, emphasizes that very strongly. And I read something of his recently that reminded me of that. The facilitator is the least important person in the room. And um, so showing up with that in mind is is really important, you know, because because it's true, we're not the most important. We're we're an invited guest into a community that needs to grow by itself, in and of itself, and we're not going to be there. I mean, in breezes, in your case, you you are you continue to work with the organisation because it's internal, isn't it? But group by group, you don't you're not a member of every single group that you oh. right? So it's a similar similar thing. Yeah, very similar. I I actually I think retrospectively, uh, when I reflect on what Gabriel you said, I probably learned from you guys a lot about this aspect of like you know leave the the concept of me behind when I enter a team because we we have many many different teams that i facilitate and really i I come with an idea of learning a curiosity and and appreciation so i think that's probably you know shaped by by some of the elements i learned from you guys when i when i work with uh, internal teams and there are a few elements that where i would like to dig a little bit deeper because from what i hear it sounds almost as if you're bringing glasses to the space glasses with new lens through which they can look at their own organization their own team where they see appreciation so just shifting the perspective a little bit by facilitation methods and for this to happen they need to be open they need to invite you in the first place as you mentioned and then i wonder if it's the situation that um, tobias mentioned in the beginning where someone approaches you who's looking for fixing and does it make sense to say okay i'm not doing this because i'm not coming here to fix or does it make sense to still go in there pretend that you can fix but then <laughs> use the a little bit of a method of um yeah maybe mental or emotional aikido <laughs> to shift the energy and to show them this new lens, this new perspective that actually they don't need fixing. It's hard work. Who it's said it would be easy? I think it's an important thing you're saying there, though, because if you start by saying, well, I can't fix your organization, you don't need fixing, they won't hire you. They'll hire someone else who says, I can fix you, because that's what they're looking for. So there has to be a balance between you don't say, of course, I can come in and fix you, but you do engage in a conversation about fixing and what that means, you know. So we've got to be careful not to be so self-righteous as I can be, sort of deny myself the work in the first place, you know. So uh, I hate this word, but it is some sort of compromise. In the very beginning, you know, and uh, just, just in order to kind of like get the conversation going, get past the email and the Zoom call and actually get into a, an, an engaged conversation. Either like, well, maybe not past the Zoom call because a lot of stuff happens on Zoom now, but <laughs> a bit more like this rather than just a quick kind of, can you do this yes or no sort of mm. conversation, mm. you know, 
um, and begin to get some engagement going. I mean, I like to work in person as much as I possibly can, um, especially in those kinds of engagements, because there's so it's so much more powerful. Mm -hmm. I did a meetup last night. And I was able to run an experiment, a physical experiment with human bodies that I've been dying to do, but I've only been able to teach this thing online. And so this is my first opportunity. So at the beginning of the meeting, I said, right, yeah, I'm going to conduct an experiment on your bodies. Okay, so here we go. <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, I, I was happy with the results of it. And I learned a lot from that. But I Can you tell us what you actually did? You cannot oh, just put some breadcrumbs there and then leave us. That's what he always does. <laughs> we continued <laughs> yeah oh oh that's that's for another time that that's not for this conversation but the, the point is there's a lot you can do in a in a physical setting in terms of engaging people bodily then you obviously you can't do on an online call you can we can only engage in the way we're engaging now we can only see faces i can't even see your bodies let alone touch you and the idea of embodying learning i think is really vital when we learn with our bodies and fr again francis lauman's very big on this and does a lot of it when he does the in-person stuff. He somehow manages to do it online as well. I don't quite know how he achieves that, but he does. But I, I'm not so great at that. But when I'm in a room with people and there's so much you can do, it's like I often feel like a facilitator is almost like a sculptor and the, the group is the, is the material. And so there's some, some physical creation act there. So in that, in that way, going back to your original question, I think facilitation is like art. Or the facilitator is like an artist, maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe. I'm not sure. Sounds a bit pretentious, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm not sure if it's a craft thing. You were talking a lot about this arts versus craft thing. And in my mind, I, I connected arts to a mindset and craft to a method. But mm -hmm. I'm, 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 not, I'm, I'm even less sure about this now. I resonate with you. What what do you say, Gabor? So I I basically answered it's probably all of them, but I personally are gearing a, a bit more to the art and a bit more to the mindset. You know, if there is a map, I'm probably swimming in that piece of more in the flow, in the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, one, one thing that I I when when Tobias you shared about this like a compromise, you know, maybe a new lens to look at it is. Perhaps it's an opportunity to actually help the leader to see the system and see him or herself in that system. If there is an opportunity for for facilitation and intervention, when we we will sometimes come to a system, I I have the belief that the system, you know, the group of people, they run. There is always a reason. I I feel like the system is always thriving for a balance. So there's a reason why this group is behaving a certain way. And if the leader is calling somebody to fix it, I become curious. So what's happening in this system and what's happening with the leader? Maybe this is an opportunity then for like some new perspectives and shining light on blind spots. Yeah. It's a beautiful starting point, right? Yeah, it is. It's the mirror thing, isn't it, again? We talk about that in, in the role of the Scrum Master. You know, the Scrum Master does some facilitation work, but essentially the role of the Scrum Master is, well, the role of Scrum is to be a mirror for the organization. And the role of the Scrum Master is to hold the mirror. And that's really all. That's really all, you know, and um, not, not to fix things, not, not to even, not to tell people what to do, not to initiate it, but just to say, this is what you look like. Would you like to do something about that? 
and to support that if they do. But sometimes they don't. You know, they just, when you see it. But what you were saying about having the leader in the picture, it reminds me of like, of taking a picture of a group of people and then taking a selfie with that group of people. You know, so you're in the picture now. And um, there's something about, well, then how, how does it look with you and them? You know, is that what's the separation? Because then you see that, right? If the leader is taking the selfie with the group behind him, then the leader's in front and the group's behind. That's quite telling, isn't it? But if you just take a photo, this is my group, look how great they are. You know, you're not really giving the dynamic then. Where are you in that? But you're behind the camera. So there's something in that that's worth exploring, I think. Yeah, isn't this actually a nice way to see then the facilitator coming in? So through the facilitator, it's possible for the leader to be with their group, maybe even to stand behind the group. Yeah, then the facilitator takes the, takes the picture. And then you can show it to them. Yeah, that, that reminds me of actually a, a leadership concept that I have been facilitating in my environment. We call it systemic leadership. We literally ask people to stand while we facilitate, to be in front, to be in the back, to be on the side. Because you, as, as a leader, everybody is a leader. That's the belief that we are holding. Everybody has leadership qualities. And when the people manager, let's say, or when this person stands in, in different points in this, with this team, he may be sort of leading the pack. He may be supporting as a backrock. He may be on the side of architecting and catalyzing and coaching, right? So it's very different perspectives that this person can take to help the organization. And in this whole process, a facilitator is actually a vital, plays a vital role to help the whole system to find its balance in a way, right? To find its 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 optimum kind of most relaxed and most creative state for the leader and for the for the whole group. Yeah. I can imagine uh, running a, an exercise where you position the group of people and the leader in different arrangements so there's the group and then there's the leaders behind them so they can't see the leader but he's behind them that doesn't sound like a very good position to me because it make me nervous if i was like, where is the guy <laughs> looking behind me and and there's the one of like one in front leading them or to the side for me the physical formation this is again why i like in-person classes is the circle because there's no there's no head in a circle everyone is it doesn't matter where you sit you're absolutely equal to everyone else and so i always start my scrum workshops in a circle uh, and it throws people when they come in they get they feel awkward about it and you get the occasional reference to alcoholics anonymous or something you know go what have i walked into here because it's so unusual and this is what i wanted to actually pick up on what you said earlier breeze about meeting people where they are I want to meet people where they are emotionally, but geographically, and I mean geographically, um, like physical geography and also internal geography, I don't want to meet them where they are. I want to mm. pull them out of where they are and throw them into something completely new and, and shocking almost. I mean, this is why I mentioned uh, an upstairs room of a pub in Hammersmith. Um, that's not a corporate environment. Well, so you invite people into that environment and, and say, so let's have lunch in the pub. You know, doing you know, doing the session, and uh, you've got views out onto the river. There, it's a very different, and 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 it's all funky. Like the furniture's all you know mixed up, and nothing matches, and the carpet's dirty from all the parties they've had in there. It's not a corporate environment, and it and it immediately 
changes the way someone is showing up as soon as they walk into a room like that. You know, so it's really important to pull people away from what they're what they feel safe with, but to not do that emotionally. So it's a finding that balance between the geography and and the physical, mental geography, but the emotional state must must be respected and honored. And I would like to have a closer look on the power dynamics, especially when, because we now spoke a lot about the facilitator coming in from the outside of an organization. And I think if you're called in from the outside, you do have more slack in provoking the group, taking them to a pub, making them sit in a circle. Because you you do have the, you receive the invitation, you have permission in air quotes to do things that are unfamiliar. And what I now think of a scrum master who is inside the organization already, in theory, they do have the task of facilitation beyond just the method. So there's scrum as a method, but there's a facilitation bit as well, right? And how do you, how do you take that space to really become a facilitator beyond just the method in an organization that might, yeah, might, that might not be fully ready for that? I'm just, I'm just doing what's best. And I, and I don't care about the expectations of my surroundings, of my environment. I'm here to serve, serve the people, serve a team. And and I can't do that with traditional corporate methods. So therefore, I need to break things around me. I need to be challenging. I need to be. I need to bring new thinking into into this place. And yes, my job might be at jeopardy because of that. It has rarely been because of this, but it could be. But somehow, I always get away with it. So can you give an example? Because I think it can be inspiring for those who might not dare and then to learn that uh, it doesn't necessarily cost you your job. First of all, for me, what's very important is that I, I show up as, as the human being I am. I am somebody that's in their mid-40s. I still have long hair and I always, nearly always wear metal t-shirts. That's me. That's my being. That's my personality. So I take that in an organization. And I'm not expecting kudos for this or recognition, but that's just the way I show up at work. And then I start to do things differently. I, I, uh, I leave a mess at my desk. I don't believe in the clean desk policy. I put my stuff around me and leave it there until the next day. And, you know, I just gently just start to like, do things a bit differently being a bit of a of a rebel but you know in a in a non-confrontative way just yet and then when it comes to hey but you're a scrum master and you should uh, you should you should lead then when i get these challenges that's when i start facilitating and facilitating my team and my group and take their voice as my decision if i may frame it that way i facilitate let's say a decision or i or i facilitate a brainstorming session and when they want to hear my ideas as a leader 
I will always say that, yeah, I have I have done a workshop on this and the, the team is thinking then this would be the best way. So when I'm asked for my opinion, I will say that, yeah, this is the team's opinion. So there is a different dynamic and there is a different sort of play with vocabulary here. You, you say one thing and in response, I say something else that I find uh, the best. It's like, you know, when people talk about resources and when they say, yeah, 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 the people are awesome here. <laughs> when they say, yeah, we have some very fine resources in this organization. And I say, yeah, the people are amazing. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's it, that sort of dynamic. That's reframing the language, isn't it? I just want to yeah. riff on Gabor's when you're talking about how you show up. See, I, you, you described some uh, surface things, T-shirt and hair and stuff. Yeah, like that. of course. When I see you show up, I see you show up as a Hungarian and I see you show <laughs> up as a writer and I see you show up as a lover of literature and, and you bring those things into the workshops that you do. Maybe they're different inside the corporate world, but I've done your workshops outside of the corporate world and they're always amazing because they shift they, they shift the, the participants outside of their normal way of thinking and throw them into the world of story i suppose really and and the world of story is a magical place you know and that's where we can we be, we become characters in the story almost like we become the heroes or or the adventurer in in the stories that that gabor uses in the workshops i've done with him so you i i, I absolutely endorse that you show up as who you are but who you are is more than your t-shirt and your head of course yeah yeah but that's what people people don't see me as a hungarian and don't see me as a as a as a literature lover they see a, a bloke that is long hair and shows up in an acdc t-shirt and what i love about this conversation is that's what you're you're immediately throwing them throwing them off balance by that you know because yeah. you don't have the short hair and the corporate look and the nicely shaved beard and the tie and everything you know and uh, and so you're already yeah it throws people off off their beat a little bit and that's where we want them we want them to be a and little bit unstable because if you're all rigid and stable and solid then safe you can't learn anything you can only learn things when you're starting to fall all right that's when that's when it kicks in really <laughs> and and the way how I understood what Gabo explained is slightly different that, yes, you show up, you provoke, but at the same time, you also give permission to others to do the same, to bend the rules. So if you show up slightly provocative and you leave your desk as a mess, yes, these are the visible things, but you're also showing others that they can do it. So basically, yes, you do lead by example, but maybe in a different way than it's corporately expected from you. And what I love about Tobias' reflection on you being more than just the long hair and the T-shirt <laughs> is that as facilitators, I think we, corporate or not, what we often forget is that we represent everything that we have been before and everything that we have accumulated in our private lives and our professional lives. And all of that creates our presence or signature in a workshop because this is how we show up and this is what we invite them, the group into. Yeah, that's lovely. You know, I think the best advice you can give someone is how do I become a great facilitator? I think the answer is live well. <laughs> 
like all the tools and techniques won't they'll serve you but they they won't make you you know if you you like you're saying it's the experiences we've had in life that we bring and what we have to do is live well and bring all of that life into into the work we, we can't leave it at the door whatever it is you know the political strife we've been through the the faith that we have the religion we're raised in the religion we've chosen whatever it is we bring it in and and there's a huge amount of power in that I had a lovely experience once of working in a in a Mormon organization where all of the people were Mormons. Uh and I wasn't. <laughs> and um, but what surprised me is they all went to the same temple and so on, you know, they all knew each other. But when they came to work, they left their faith at the door and they got into this horrible corporate strife. And so part of my facilitation became how do you bring your faith into work? And it shifted things. Mm. And uh, but I could do that, not being of the same faith, but of a similar faith, but not the same. But then we had a lot of really interesting conversations that really began to change things. I, I love what you said, what you said uh, Tobias. It reminds me of you know this this wholeness, right? So it's like really we bring the whole of ourselves into the environment, and when you are showing up, like Gabor, you you just mentioned, when when you are kind of opening up yourself as an authentic yourself. There are connections that you build with people, and that also help the others open up. And that's where change can happen. I mean, what what I found is really before people open up, you can talk whatever you know, whatever craft, whatever process, you know, things will just remain talking. And and I, I guess it's really about when when this this authenticity, this compassion, this. Um, the, the the trust is there when people really open up, then that's where things can shift, and that's where when you bring your wholeness to work, people see you as as this authentic whole, and I think that's beautiful in in showing up. And I I work in a corporate, well I I work in a very very large company. I must say we actually it mm, we aspire. Let's say it that way we aspire to actually bring wholeness to work, no matter where we are. And, and we, I, at least the contribution that I hope I will bring is to live authentically, um, to show up so that we actually shift the identity of like a corporate world because there are still a lot of people in these type of organizations, right? We want a, a more authentic world in that sense. Yeah. And what comes to my mind is the concept of permission. That how can we bring the concept of permission that the others, the leaders and those who air quotes follow feel the permission to show up authentically? Because I have the impression that very often everyone in the corporate world, in the workshops, when we step in, they're wearing all this armor and all these masks. And then it's our job to remove all of that. And or to help them to dare to remove it themselves. Yeah, rather this because I don't like undressing people at work. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I I mean I feel like this is probably in general. Maybe it's, it's not only corporate. It I guess it, it can happen anywhere. You know, if we have some trauma, a tra trauma, I mean, I certainly will do probably from childhood. Every one of us probably have something, right? And as a survival mechanism, we start to build facade. 
And, and that's actually like for me, it, it, it would be a, a sad way to, to continue like this. So I think I, I don't like the idea of permission because I have permission for myself. Mm. And, and, and this is the decision of me of showing up a certain way. Well, yeah. I guess this will, you know, determine what kind of environment that I, I can be. I must say, you know, my environment is actually very, very open at the moment. And I appreciate the leaders, um, you know, in my environment that, that cultivated such environment. But I still remain, the, I, I still have this strong belief, we all have a choice. I yeah. don't want other people to permit me to be who I am. And I, I, I aspire to actually bring this energy to people who might not yet live like this. Mm -hmm. I, I guess one, one point that you might do or one thing that you might do is, is just call out the insanity of wearing masks and, and, uh, you know, being, and, and, you know, leaving, leaving your true self at the reception when you enter the office in the morning at nine o'clock. And calling out that as a mental challenge, as a mentally damaging thing to do, as, you know, it is not healthy to have a double identity. If you call out these things, then you might highlight that, look, this just doesn't really work. So we should try something different. And how can we do that when we're working inside a corporation where there are power dynamics, when we're maybe not in the leadership position? How can we help to heal an organization to heal from inside? Hmm? What I was just thinking about there is that you were talking and going back to your original Trojan facilitator thing. I'm thinking about, I mean, the, the, the Trojan horse story from the Iliad. And the Iliad is the first part of the, you know, and then the Odyssey follows and that. But in the Iliad, Odysseus has been pulled away from his home to fight in a battle. He doesn't want to fight it. And um, that, you know, and spends years away from home. And in the Odyssey, he, he travels to find his way home again. So that's the story. And I think that many people in the corporate world are in the Iliad. They've lost their home. They've been hauled away from what's true to them. And they've been pulled into this corporate culture, which is so alien to the human nature. But we've accepted it because it's, been, it's become the norm. And I think the facilitator's job might be then to go in and um, – the, uh, this is where the Troy thing comes around. The Trojan horse was the way that the battle was ended. So um, we went in to end the battle so that we can then go home. Right? And so now we're, we can then bring people back to what they truly believe and what how they truly want to live. And I think that's the job of the facilitator. So in that sense, we go in in a Trojan-like way, but not to sack Troy, but to take Odysseus home so he can get home again. You know, so that might be a, a different way of looking at the story. That's beautiful. I, I love that going home. And I would I would say one element that helped me enormously is uh, compassion. Compassion for myself, because I was there before. Compassion mm -hmm. of the other. And also, I think, compassion of the system that people are in. And that, that compassion and the system, I would say probably two elements, compassion and also this broad system thinking helped me enormously in, in doing this work. To go in with this broad heart, I would say, right? To be aspired uh, to bring an authentic work environment into, you know, whatever environment that I, I get to encounter with the compassion to support people to open up, to look 
with the mirror in, into what they they see and help them open up so that they can shift. Yeah, I love that idea of compassion for the system itself. You never hear that. It's so rare. With compassion for the individual, for the group, even for the executive management, but the system itself, yeah, wow. Yeah. There, it's always, I, I mean, it's, there's always a reason, you know, I, I feel like, you know, we are, we are all in complex systems, like mm. living systems. When people are living like that, there is a reason. I feel like there is a reason that the system is like this. So the, the, the system itself, they thrive for the best balance. So I, I always come in with curiosity. So like, what's, what are they serving? What is this dynamic that I may perceive as unhealthy? serving the situation if i get go in with the curiosity to learn about that maybe then i could find a key to unlock whatever that is that is not so healthy well but then you know healthy and unhealthy this is also a word of judgment mm -hmm. so i i try not to come in with a judgment and really just pure curiosity to learn what is this system serving and then at some point, maybe with some artful making, I might find a key. Or might not, you know, I have to say. So basically, what are they protecting that might seem even more painful, hurtful, or dangerous to them? So that the be behavior of the systems working is covering it up. It can be one scenario. And, and that's where really curiosity is, is really serving here. Because I guess the possibility can be a lot. There can be a lot of uh, possibilities of mm. what is the system serving. Thank you. And I would, I hey, see hey, that. I have a question in the. Um... Exactly. I wanted to invite Kate maybe to ask her question on also the rest of the, of our audience to contribute comments or questions to the discussion. Can you give an example of when this worked for you? Do you mean the curiosity of the system? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So, I mean, what's been on my mind listening to the conversation is that whether you're coming in as a consultant or working within, I mean, we're talking about change management. And yeah, I just love this idea of at the very, very, looking at the very, very whole of the system first. And I have a hard time, I will admit, I have a hard time being curious at that point, I already come in with some bias and judgment, which is human. And so I would just love to hear about a time or two when you were able to employ this and what happened. Well, maybe one example is, um, so so I'm based in the headquarter of a, of a large organization, and we have over 100 countries around the world. And I was asked to support one team. So that's that's the CEO of the, of the country's country CEO and, and the leadership team. So Basically, we are in the same company, but I'm actually an outsider for that system. So, you know, that country system, you know, when I, when I came in, there were a lot of, I, I wouldn't go into sort of super details. What I learned, you know, that's also why I feel compassion and curiosity for the system really helped me is like that really helped me to like open a door because this type of setting you know you have if you have, if you have somebody in the headquarters coming in to do something for you you know by your ceo it's, it's like a, a recipe for disaster of closed door right so i started to kind of really really you know talk with people and really try to understand what are the situations that they are facing and understanding the individual 
people in the leadership teams, their individual pain points, and build the trust there. So then later on, we work like with some workshops and often cases workshops on, for example, leadership and mindset. So not really on the hard business uh, kind of uh, topics, really on the mindset and leadership and perhaps sometimes even delve into what might be white elephants. Then I found like the environment started to shift a little bit. They started to share their pain points, which can, well, in that case, it was uh, like to do with some of the, the, the political dynamic that is even, you know, beyond their control. So then to that point, I built a certain baseline trust. And then we, we then started to work on. So within our span of control, like within our control, you know, what can we do? You know, there are things that we cannot for that moment, but then we did some uh, like interventions within that team to to move them forward. So I, I I I wonder if I can say this success because this is still ongoing, right? This is a very complex situation, very complex market. What I what I learned a lot in this situation is the curiosity and the compassion opened the door. Mm. The sort of kind of understanding the pain points and really, you know, sort of as you said, Tobias, you know, meeting people emotionally where they are, help them to start to open up. And then the possibilities come. I, I hope that can answer the question. Yeah, that was very, thank you. It was a very, very good illustration of sort of what you're up to <laughs> and what we've been describing. So thank you. And I'm curious to know when you, because you phrased the question or phrased this as, you know, asking a question to figure out what this dynamic is serving. So in this particular case, I'm curious to know, like, do you have a hint? So what what is the answer to that question? Well, that, that would be quite specific to that specific market. Mm-hmm. And the dynamic is serving a purpose for them to actually have their business top line, uh-huh. right? So, so there are, you know, certain things as as we are we are kind of promoting in certain sort of operating models, when that just cannot work, like I was curious, what's the reason? And in the end, there were some political elements. There were actually also about business top line pressure that it's beyond kind of what this leadership team's capacity for this moment to overcome. So we're still working on that. This is also an occasion that got me really curious about system thinking, like yeah. we're kind of complex systems. So that's one element that that I'm kind of currently still working on. Another element that actually helped me on my well-being is a certain level of emotional capacity. Like how, how do you define this? It's a, a certain level of equanimity coming in the system. So a certain level of not attaching to a specific result because otherwise, I I would not have a very good time working with such a complex system and having to need the patience to move the needle. So I actually need a little bit of this, this equanimity of holding that having the faith and the belief that what I'm doing is helping the system. Meanwhile, realizing, wait, I need patience. And simultaneously convincing your stakeholders to also have patience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and to actually allow space. 
Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. I actually don't know. Like, like literally, as we are speaking now, it's there is no definitive. Is this a success? Is that a failure? It's still ongoing. You know, I, I'm just kind of sharing this with with my learning in this moment. And then another thought came is like maybe the path is the way. Maybe that's it then. So 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 that helps me on my well being in continuously supporting the system. But I I. Honestly, I don't know. You know, maybe some some other you know people or or teams might have a different approach. It might have a much more like abrupt or much more harsh approach. Maybe I can kind of learn more and and see how this might turn out. Yeah, thank you for the question. What I found interesting in what you said, uh, Breeze, was also the um, maybe a new perspective, a different perspective of the Trojan horse, where you were asked to come in to, again, to fix something. So there was a difficult situation of the leadership team and sent by the headquarters. And instead of coming with tools on how to fix the problem, you come in with tools on how to spread a new mindset and love and compassion. So they opened the door for a very clear expectation of, okay, You're coming in, you're fixing it, you're bringing a solution. And instead you're, oh no, let's first think about our mindset and how we, how we think and approach leadership. And through that, you build capacity for them to look at the hard topic and problem in a different way and then fix it. So for me, that's a Trojan horse oh, wow. strategy with a- uh, coming with love instead of war. Yeah, that's, that's a beautiful way to summarize. I mean, thank you. And I must say, I really am grateful for my leaders to give me the space to do that, mm. which, which I am very conscious this is, is not always the case. You know, I, I am really feeling grateful that mm. the most senior leadership is having the understanding of the, the system dynamic and it allows and it has the patience or the, the, those leaders have the patience for this system, for this country to, to develop and grow mm. itself. And I, be, I, I still strongly believe this is a healthy way because if you mm. come with a, a mindset saying, you know, I'm going to fix you, it might also fail miserably. Almost inevitably will, I think, because... <laughs> okay. Yeah, we, we don't know what other people need, do we? They do. And do our they? Job is, our job, well, they don't always, in, in fact, no, they don't always. Um, but we certainly don't. You know, we, I think I do. I often think, well, I know how to, I know the answer. Sometimes people just want to be listened to. I, I learned this lesson over and over and over and over and over again. You know, if my wife's upset about something, she just wants me to hear it and I want to go and fix it. You know, I go, oh, well, this is what you should do. And uh, it breaks rapport and it hurts and, you know, and uh, I keep making that mistake. And I think I make that mistake too in, in the corporate world, maybe less. I'm a bit more attuned to it in the corporate world than I am in my personal life, strangely, sadly. But, you know, we're all works in progress, aren't we? And, and, I, and I think that it's really just that. It's just like we, we just want to be there to hear people sometimes. That's really all. But we've already got this, we're already tainted quite often. When I go into an organization, I'm tainted with the with the brush of the executive team, you know, and I'm going in to work with software developers or testers or something, and they're kind of looking at me suspiciously. Oh, here's another, you know, expert consultant that the management have imposed on us. 
uh, because they think we're broken. And so you first have to undo that damage. That's already made before you even before you even open your mouth. You've, you've already you're coming into that damaged environment, which can be really bad sometimes, depending on the the, the level of distrust in the organisation. So it takes some time just to just to be still, really, you know, and start to work up some trust with people before you can do anything at all. So it's um, and that takes time, and and sometimes if you are coming in as a consultant, time is 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 not something that you have too much of. But unfortunately, you know, everybody expects you to hit the ground running and and do this and do that. But hey, trust takes time. So, you know, first you need to build rapport. And of course, as a seasoned consultant, you might be able to do that quicker than others, but you can't do that in a day or in three hours. So there is a challenge for you as a facilitator. Facilitate an environment that doesn't understand you, that doesn't really uh, think that they could trust you. That's quite a challenge, I think. And still, I think there are, of course, we cannot build the deep trust and rapport in just a few hours, but I think we can, through facilitation tricks or the mix, as Kate wrote in the chat, mix between coaching and facilitation, I think we are able to open the door a little bit into what can be possible by asking the right question and inviting the group to connect and be in conversation with each other in a different way. As Tobias mentioned, at the end, we all want to be listened to, whether it's in a private context or in the professional, and we don't want someone to fix us or to tell us what to do. And I think if we can create this environment, yesterday, for instance, I was facilitating a lessons learned workshop for two parties who were working on a difficult project together. So there was a lot of finger pointing and everyone believed that the other party was doing it wrong. And this was the reason why it didn't work. And we started with just 10 minutes of a turn to your neighbor. So this was on site and sharing. So how is it to be me on this project? And it was amazing because suddenly they realized, oh, we are actually all frustrated about the same things. We all believe it's the other one. And this created this kind of shared humanity or collective responsibility that from there we could work on, okay, so how can we fix it together? And it built trust or at least the lowest level of trust we needed to then continue the work within 10 minutes. Nice. Lovely. It doesn't take much sometimes, does it? it? It's really just giving people the opportunity to have those kinds of conversations, which are so often lacking. But you do need to make the space for it. And I, and I think this goes back to back to the space itself. You know, And I think if we're asking people to change the way they interact with each other in an environment that has tradition of interacting in one way, they're not going to be able to do it so well as they might be if you took them out into the garden and did it. Mm. It's just, you don't have to go far away. You just have to find a different space. One organization I worked with, I sort of honed in on the area where the user researchers worked because they had big spaces, you know, where they would do, you know, sort of testing and stuff like that. And it was a lot more, it felt very different to the rest of the organization. So I would bring people from the rest of the organization into that space. Uh, and it was in the same building and everything. It doesn't have to go far away, but it just had a different energy to it. 
you know, well, sometimes you just go into the cafeteria outside of lunchtime, and there's lots of lots of space in there, and uh, you've got more play, more play space, and get away from the desks and the bric-a-brac yeah. of the world. What, what I really hate is sometimes in meeting rooms in the center, there is an unmovable, huge, wide table. Yes. I truly detest that because I, I, because I need to work with this constraint then. And I hate that. When you have that in an organization, it's symbolic of the entire organization. That, that room with the fixed table is the organization. You know, it's, it's the organization in, in miniature, if you like, but it, it's an absolute representation. And the organizations that don't have rooms like that, that have rooms with movable furniture, says something about the style of the organization. There's, it's, uh, what, there's a law, isn't there? And, um, that the environment, I don't know what it, whose law it is, but something about the environment. It's in the software development that the, the organizational structure is reflected in the code that we write. Mm. So if our organization is hierarchical, we'll have hierarchical code, you know, rather than message passing code. And it's, yes. it's interesting. And it seems to, I can't remember whose law it is, but it plays out. Conway's, Conway's law. I just looked it up. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Lovely. Any organization that designs <laughs> a system will produce a design whose structure is a copy of the organization's communication structure. So that was, that was intended about, um, software development structures i think um but it, you can yes. certainly apply it to the organization system itself you know how the how the organization is structured how the rooms are structured how the environment is structured reflects the the, the nature of the organization itself and so it's very telling it's you know you can walk into an organization and get this instant snapshot i remember ken schwaber uh, the guy that invented scrum he came to a company i was working with because I invited him in after doing his classes, you've got to come and help our organization. And, and he came in and he was walking around. He, he, he just sort of stopped at one point. And, and it was almost like he was sniffing the air. <laughs> he said, this is a very broken organization. Oh <laughs> and it was, you know, but he could tell um, the gray cubicles, you know, the closed walls and just, just lack of communication, lack of, lack of noise. And when you're in it, as I was, you don't, you don't see it in the same way. I knew there was something wrong. I couldn't, but he came in and just nailed it. You know, it just, just saw it immediately. There is, there is a great question in the chat. Sorry about that, Mia. Probably also wanted to call out. <laughs> yeah. Etheridge, you want to? Yeah, sure. I was, I was wondering whether the, the interaction in the new space, uh, does that have a lingering effect or is it something that like, you know, you experience it, you go through it for a couple of days, and then you go back to the old routines. Lovely question. Yeah, uh, I like to believe it does. But I'm not always there in the follow up, am I? So I don't know. I mean, I do know that uh, I do know from follow up conversations from years later, that sometimes the experience of that has shifted the individual, it may not shift the organisation. But to be honest, I gave up a long time ago on trying to affect any change inside an organization. I can only affect a change in, if I'm lucky, you know, an individual or two. But really, if an organization is affected, it's not because of me, it's because of the people who are affected by me. So it's very indirect. And uh, if I focus on trying to fix the organization or change the organization, then I'm, I miss something. There's something in between those two things and I jump over it uh, at my peril. You know, so. <laughs> I have a question, Tobias. So 
do you with like in your experience do you see like a trigger point of certain number of individuals shifting therefore triggering the whole system to shift I, I I have not tried to measure that or experienced it really, but I have heard that it only takes something between five and ten percent of a group to actually shift an entire group. You only have to change the mindset of five to ten percent. There was a lot of research done about this actually, and people have done physical again. It's a physical exercise thing where if you get you set up an exercise, you need quite a lot of people, like fifty or plus people, and you give them basic self organisation. Give them a couple of rules, you know, just. Just move around the room and stay as close as you can to the people around you, um, uh, and follow the person in front, or some, you know, some basic, simple bird-like rules. And so the group is sort of moving as a whole, but but you have seeded a few people individually to do something slightly different. And if you've seeded five percent or more to do something different, the group will start to eventually follow them without realizing they're doing it, and they'll get pulled over to your else. So so the the, the extra directive might be. Do what the others are doing, and also move towards the you know the top right, the north corner of the room, and slowly but surely the whole group will be pulled over there, and they won't know why. So I've read about these experiments. I tried to conduct one once with not a huge amount of success, and I think it was because the group was only like thirty, forty people, and it wasn't it just wasn't enough of that. But it sort of worked. You could kind of see it happening, but it's very interesting, and I'd, I'd love to you know have. Uh, have the the privilege of working with a hundred people or so and playing around with that, but the research does show that it is five to ten percent of people. You don't have to shift the whole organ. You just have to get enough people who really care, and yeah. um, have the, almost like really convert, like really, really deeply having the faith. I've heard about the five percent number in yeah. my experience. <clears throat> But maybe we are kind of having a, a larger scale because we have thirteen thousand people and we are trying to shift like a different way of working. And we we have a few thousand people. We are working with some data to see, and we are we're kind of more on the twenty five percent sort of estimation that some of the experience that like smaller sensing exercises that we did, it's it it shows a kind of close to kind of twenty to twenty five percent of the people shifting but this this might be a worth interesting topic to follow up on yeah but you know i suppose the reverse is true you you can also revert back by just having five or ten percent of people not wanting to do it right so it then pulls it back the other way i mean i've, I've worked in organizations that have fluctuated between some really interesting change and then a reversion back to the status quo um, because of change of upper management usually it's um that's what causes it of course you know. and what are the incentive structures because I think, yes, you can have these five to 10% people who really are there to change the mindset. But then if the organization rewards the air quotes wrong behavior, then it's very difficult to fight against that. So if you, if yes, you, you, you get the recognition or the emotional recognition from behaving in one way, but then the paycheck, the promotion, the yearly review clearly promotes a different set of behaviors, then you're sending people into a schizophrenic state. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a really important point because the, the exercises I'm talking about, the shift is not within an environment that is suppressing the change. And, and most of the environments we go into are actually, without realizing it, 
You know, I love the question when people say, uh, usually managers, almost always managers, actually, they say, how do I motivate my team? And the only answer to that is stop doing all the things that demotivate them, right? And the even people haven't even thought of that, right? They don't realize that so much of what they do in a corporation demotivates people. You don't have to motivate people. They motivate themselves. We're all intrinsically motivated to do to, to enjoy life, essentially, and work is part of life. But we go into the work organization, and there's all these things that get in the way of us actually fulfilling our dream of, of doing good work. So if we can take those things away, you've got a motivated workforce. It's so simple. But that is part of what the, the changing of the culture requires. You know, I'm demotivated. I might feel extrinsically motivated by getting more money at the end of the quarter or the end of the year. But ultimately, that's not my motivation, you know, and that puts me in, in competition with my colleagues and, uh, you know, and causes me disgruntlement when I don't get yeah. it. It's just like the I most... Mean- Effect, yeah. Because for me to win, you need to lose. I can only win if you lose. Yeah, you can only win. That's, you... that's that's horrible. Is Any this kind true? Of Is this true? Because I think, I think it's okay. I had a conversation with Lizette Southern last week on the podcast, and we talked about these different motivators. And there are people there just before retirement. And for them, it's important to just make money for the last decade of their work life. And what if it was, okay, can we approach this goal and this motivation without judgment and still see the benefits of it? And just because someone is motivated by the financial aspect, does it mean that someone else has to lose? So I think it depends on the incentive structures. Can't there be a bonus for collective teamwork so that everyone wins i I mean, yeah something that i can i i wanted to share and this is also still work in progress and and we are we are experimenting i think the performance management practices there are a lot of paper uh, hbr writing about this we are actually trying in our team to have only a team-based bonus mm-hmm. so basically we get the same percentage what i personally love this a lot is that we really then like at least for me i would believe your success is my success mm-hmm. like i spend a lot of time helping others actually without showing up in the in the impact or result so i i, I do a lot of things stealth really you know not showing up this sometimes is re- is really challenging because I mean I have an ego too. I guess I want to create impact. I want to you know show up, show things right, and 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 I think this is actually a really interesting journey. I've been three years in this you know performance system, and I like three years on. I really very much enjoy it because once then come back to this 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 concept of the whole system thinking and the compassion. This way of performance management actually aligns with my, with my values. Then in the end, I, I feel good when I helped others. And I believe that actually when, when my, my colleague is successful, actually financially, I get the benefit in the end as well. This is, however, not that easy because it can also create this concept of that I don't need to do anything, you know, all the other people will do everything. And I would just, you know, it's like a communist party, kind of like everybody does the same. This is kind of the con- constant debate. And then I'm like really always kind of mentioning about like, how do we connect with our value and purpose so that 
you know, that when we are working in this environment, we are intrinsically motivated by our values and purpose so that we, we, we continue to propel further. And, and I think this is kind of the, my lived experience in the last three years of having this performance management system. And on top of that, we do, you know, applause. We, we send other non-financial and financial incentives to people who have the, you know, who, who see the visible impact. So I think that's also another topic worth, worth learning and, and experiencing. Yeah. Are there questions or comments from our audience? I don't know, Atreet, did we answer your question effectively about the effect of interacting in the new space have longer lingering impact? I, mean, I wanted to add things there. Uh, I just, you know, Tobias was facilitating so many workshops out of a of a converted church, I think it was, in, in Shoreditch. And, you know, at that time I worked for a, a, a large multinational organization And those were those days were the sort of retreat. Those were the times when I actually left my organization and and went to a, a place to recharge, to meet with kindred folk, to meet with others who are in the same boat with me, but in a completely different organization. And that was the opportunity for me to take a bird's eye view of my system, my organization, and learn something about it through the experience of others and through the lens of, of what has been facilitated there. And they were truly transformative. And that change of the space, the change of space was absolutely required for that transformation to take place. Mm. I don't think it I don't think it could have happened anywhere else. Beautiful. Yeah, it was a beautiful space though, and it, it was it was a very transformative place. Yeah. This is where we met last time. I remember the church. This is it's really the whole environment kind of shifted my energy. That's a beautiful place, yeah. Gone now, sadly. I mean the building's still there, but it's not, not accessible. But, you know, the, the, for me, this was a particularly beautiful place, but I'm not too precious about it. It was sad not to not to be working there. But for me, it's any place that isn't corporate that works. You know, the, we're working in, you know, the last couple of scrum exchanges in the chocolate factory or whatever it's called. The chocolate studios or whatever, yeah. There's a converted, a converted chocolate factory place and they've got nice rooms as well. It's not quite as stunning as this, but also beautiful. But But, you know, and that little funky room above the pub, you know, there was transformation that happened there, no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and other places, other community halls I've worked in. So um, is it... Churches and things, you know. It's, uh, is it then about the embodied experience of recognizing how the environment actually impacts our interactions and ourselves? It's a bit of that, I think, but I thought it was just that. But I think there's something more, and I think it's about reminding people what community is. Mm. there's a space like a pub is is a is a place for mm. community. Well, traditionally it was maybe in the cafeterias as well as you mentioned yeah right. the church most certainly is you know mm. so these places were that are kind of in, in, embedded in us almost physically in our genes that you know these are these are these are our places they're not someone else's places they're our places um and the corporate world is someone else's place Ooh, that's that's I never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. That's new to me. 
There's a little, sorry, it's Kate. Hi. <laughs> There's a little bit of, of revolution in that, <laughs> that, that appeals to me, this idea of, you know, claiming communal power. And it just brought to mind the fact that going from big action and big change in uh, context to tiny things like Troika Consulting, which to me is my tiny little weapon that reminds people what community is. It is the act of asking for and receiving mutual support. And so I think just to take it back down to what any facilitator can do anytime in even a quite hostile environment, that is one tiny, tiny method that is actually the meaning behind it can run quite deep. I wanted to go back to Etrit's point before I have to jump. And also, I guess we're running into time too. So, Etrit, I think, I mean, this is always, we talk about this a lot, right? Like you come in, especially as an external, maybe even within somebody's meeting room, you have a really eye-opening chain, you know, a different kind of experience for people. People are really feeling the the vibe and acknowledging it. And we can lead them through a reflection to talk about why this was different and, you know, what are you going to change? What's one thing you're going to take away? And then we leave right? <laughs> and so, and so it is, that is the great thing about being embedded or having a, even like a longer term consulting gig, because you can take a, you can take like a learning design lens on it and say, okay, so when we learn something, we, if we don't revisit it, we lose 80% of it within two weeks or even 12 hours or something ridiculous. Like the curve is the drop-off of our retention of these things is is very quick and so that's where you know little very practical things like the random follow up call that came up in a discussion recently can help people reflect again like oh do you remember what it was like when we did that how is that going for you as a scrum master in a retrospective where do you hold these realizations that came up during the retreat wherever it was and how do you revisit them for people and keep them top of mind? So, so yeah, I mean, these are, it's not, you know, magic or mystical. <laughs> they are techniques, but I think, I think you're right. I think there is a lot of skepticism that comes out of what value retreats have, what value these quote unquote transformations have, because so much of it doesn't stick because there isn't necessarily the follow up and the, that and the supports built in to make sure that they at least stick somewhat. So, sorry, that was a monologue. <laughs> I didn't, didn't mean it to be as such, but while I'm on, Mike, thank you so much. You make some great points there, Kate, about, about the follow-up thing. And one of the techniques I use when I'm, I'm teaching just like a two-day class where people have never met each other before is to remind them that the, the workshop is, uh, is a beginning, not an end, and that they need to then take it forward. So how do we take it forward? We always finish the class with giving people an opportunity to either pair up or get into small groups to make commitments to each other about what they're going to do next. So what's your first thing you're going to first change you're going to make when you go back to work and you make that commitment to another person and they make a commitment to you and then you exchange phone numbers or maybe you work for the same company and you commit to following up with each other. That's the very least, you know, sometimes um, bigger groups will form as a result of that, you know, they'll create a WhatsApp group or something and sometimes they last, sometimes they don't. But if you just end the class without any of that, then they won't remember it. 
you know, and it will be a bit meaningless. But the other aspect I think that's important about these retreats and offsites is I'm very um, averse to the term team building. I don't, I don't think anyone has the ability to create, to build teams. Teams emerge from the team, from the people, not from, not from being built. We're, we're not bricks in a wall. We're flowers in a garden. And I, and I think that so the idea of team building, we've got to be very careful with that metaphor. And because that's when we go and we whoop everyone up into this spirit of team, we get them swinging on ropes and, you know, falling into each other's arms and stuff. And then they'll go back to work the next day and they're all embarrassed by it. You know, so it doesn't really affect any change at all. So, but we, we have to do something deeper with people that's, that's genuine and authentic. I hate that word too, but as some, feeling of of being who, who we really are not not who we're pretending to be because we're away from work for a couple of days you know it's uh there's something that we, we we don't do it well the corporate world does not do this well you know we we need to we need to find better ways of doing these these kind of offsites and stuff in order to make the, the learning last it's got to be follow-ups it's got to be something that changes as a result of it I mean, that's the power of the retrospective in Scrum. It's not just get together and talk about what's working and what isn't and have a bit of a moan about it. It's like make concrete decisions and take action on what you want to be different and hold yourself accountable to that next time you meet. And we do this every week or every two weeks and and tiny changes, really small things, you know, read a chapter of a book or something like that, and they they accumulate very fast. Um, But if we don't hold each other accountable to that, and um, they won't, it won't on ourselves, of course, it, then it, it doesn't happen. So that's how the change sticks. Thank you. Thank you for this uh, conversation and wondering. What are you taking away from this conversation? Maybe as a one word or one sentence check out. I want to explore the, the whole facilitation in terms of Greek mythology a bit further. <laughs> I think Gabor will be up for that too. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. For me is stop demotivating. Stop demotivating. Yeah. Nice. <clears throat> oh, and the other thing that Breeze's comment about compassion for the system. That's mm-hmm. a lovely thing to, to consider, I think. Compassion for the system and the, the big system too. Perhaps, you know, the, the big world systems that I'm so critical of. For me, I mean, the whole experience, it's, it's maybe just humanity. I don't know. I mean, I, I never mentioned this word in this conversation, but actually it's something really so basic of the humanity, the con- connection, the compassion that, that really resonates with me right now. But and Kate? Well, one word. It's difficult. There, there, there are so many things. Yeah. Like, I, I love the mythology thing also because um, I keep reading stuff about it and never occurred to me to think of it through facilitation and in relation to facilitation, but also compassion. But com- com- like compassion that starts with me so that it can extend because very often we are so hard against ourselves that it's easier to be compassionate towards others, but then it also backfires. So like the feedback loops there so yeah i'm just gonna echo uh breeze's comment that i picked up on earlier about yeah having curiosity for the system and compassion for the system and how that will make so much more space than probably i have allowed myself so thank you
Thank you. Thank you, Miriam. Oh, Miriam, you are not you are not going to get away with this, Miriam. <laughs> what sticks to me is the depth of the topic and the importance to to share different perspectives and to bring facilitators from different areas together to explore them and how the the gardening that Breeze started with and Tobias basically closed with. Yeah, how we can combine this with a little bit of Greek mythology and systems thinking. Wow, beautiful. Olive trees come to mind. <laughs> Olive orchards. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. It's lovely to see you. Thank all. you for inviting us. Yeah. It was really like a school reunion. Yeah, that's really made my day. Yeah. Take good care, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for staying tuned and for listening until the very end. I hope that you found the inspiration and the wisdom that you are looking for. And I hope that you will subscribe to the show so that you never miss any of the interviews with another inspiring facilitator from across the world. I'm devoted to continue this podcast and to deliver weekly an episode that maintains the quality that you expect and you deserve. And if you would like to help me to maintain this quality and to keep the podcast free, please help us visit workshops.org slash support to make a small donation to keep the podcast free. Thank you so much. I hope to be in your ears next week. <laughs>